Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Colossians. And we'll be in chapter 3. Paul's letter to the church in Colossae in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Heavenly Father, we have now opened up your word, Father. We pray that it would speak to our hearts. Minister to us today by way of your Holy Spirit. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are welcoming in 2023. And instead of going back into James, which we will do the week after the missionary um, uh, preaches, we'll get back on track with James. But I thought uh, today I'd, I'd preach a New Year's message on what is our resolutions for the new year. And it reminds me of this story. A young daughter observed her mother writing something on a piece of paper and asked her what she was doing. The mother replied, I am writing my New Year's resolution. Intrigued, the young daughter asked, what's a New Year's resolution? The mother paused and said, it's a commitment to do something new and different in the new year. The young daughter then asked, why? With the mother saying, because people want to improve themselves. The young daughter thought about it and then asked again, what do you want to improve on this year, mom? The mother paused again and said, I want to improve myself by losing a few pounds. The young daughter thought about that and then asked, why? After sighing, the mother replied, to feel better and to look better. The young daughter thought about it for a few minutes and, and then asked, well, what was your New Year's resolution last year? The mother stopped writing, put her pen down, stared to the ceiling of her room and said the same thing as last year. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you keep New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you make New Year's resolutions, but a study found that only 9 to 12% of people that make a New Year's resolution actually follow through. That's not very good odds. Now, I don't have anything against New Year's resolutions. I personally don't make New Year's resolutions because I fall within that 9 to 12%. And I hope that if you do, did make a New Year's resolution, that you're committed to doing it. We're going to pray you up to do it and so that you can not be part of that 9 to 12% because I think... We do need to improve in our life. We do need to do new things, make ourselves better, learn a new language, lose those few pounds, whatever it might be, whatever your goal is. It's good that once we set it, we accomplish it. Because once we set goals and we accomplish it, it's great motivation to set more goals and accomplish them. You know, as we look to the new year ahead of us, I think it's also important to set goals in our Christian walk as well. Now, you've heard me talk about sanctification. You've heard me talk about progressing and maturing in Christ. 
then we're to draw closer to Him. That's not a New Year's resolution. That's an everyday exercise. We are to become more like Him in our thoughts, in our actions, in our speech. But there are areas in our life that we need to improve on. And those areas that I just read out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, those are the little things. Little things that we can improve on in our Christian walk. And what I mean by little things is those areas in our life that we always need to improve and give a little bit more attention to. This morning I would like to share with you from Paul's letter to the Colossians the little things that we can improve on in our lives with the hope of improving in these areas. So let's examine each one of them. The first one is we need to be more compassionate as Christians, as believers. I don't know about you, but it seems like the world is becoming more hardened in their hearts towards each other. We're seeing indiscriminate violence in our streets. A complete lack of respect from one to another. A devaluing of lives. I can't believe this country has torn itself apart over whether it's right or wrong to abort a baby. I don't even understand that. We live in a cancel culture where if you say the wrong things or if you said the wrong things 20 years ago, you're canceled. I don't understand that either. We're actually seeing signs of segregation again. But the difference between that and the 60s when we got rid of it is it's being self-imposed. We see drug abuse on the rise. That fentanyl is some scary stuff. And any one of us can get in contact with it. And the news is anything but positive and divisive socially and politically. There are people actually out there trying to subdivide us into groups to divide us. I hope it never works its way into the church. As a result, if we're not careful, when we watch the news and we interact with people that are becoming hardened, we too can be conditioned to do the same thing. If we're not careful, we'll just be a reflection of the world. And it can lead to a hardened heart. And one that doesn't have compassion or empathy for others. The word used here by Paul for compassion, it means tender mercies. In fact, in the King James Version, I like how it reads. It says, bowels of mercy. And that word bowels means that it's a deep-seated yearning. A deep-seated yearning we are to have in extending mercy and compassion to others. And to be empathetic to the sufferings and the things that they're dealing with in their life. We're to be cognizant of them, sensitive to them. Because one of the areas of being uncompassionate is to be indifferent to it. That's their problems. They need to fix themselves. 
Now, why does Paul even have to advocate this to a letter to a church? Could you imagine us getting a letter that tells us to do this? Well, in reality, we are. For this letter is just as much for us as it was for the first church that received it. And the reason why is if we look at our verses a little bit before that. In verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off your old self, which practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, in the image of its creator. You see, we have a propensity, even as believers, to regress into those areas if we're not careful. If our influences lead us in that direction. And that's why Paul is saying this. And we are to have this compassion for others. We are to be sensitive to the needs of others, the difficulties they're going through, the struggles they're going through, the trials that they're going through. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we see Jesus do this very thing. In chapter 9, verses 36, we see when Jesus says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This showed the heart of Jesus in that he's seen their true need. They needed a Savior. They needed a shepherd. They needed somebody who cared and was interested in them and was willing to die for them, even though they didn't even know that's what they needed. This is how we are to be with other people. We are to see their true need and compassionate with compassionate hearts. We can never truly serve another person unless we have compassion for them. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we have a hard heart towards somebody, the last thing we're probably going to do is serve them in any way. Oh, we might point a finger at them and say, you need to get that straight. Let me lay down some scripture for you. Yeah, it's a hard truth, but you need to walk in it. Oh, there's probably times to do that. But not when someone's hurting and they love. And it all comes from the heart. All that we do comes from the heart. And if we're not compassionate towards other people, that's a heart thing, not a do thing. It's a heart thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it says, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and a God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are com comforted by God. It is reciprocal. How God has comforted you in the midst of your trials tribulations, suffering, miseries, is how then you have learned the compassion of Christ 
Now you can be compassionate to others. This is a community thing. And Jesus and God through His divine appointment has called the church to reflect this, to be His instruments for it. And so we need to have more compassion towards one another. Secondly, we're to put on kindness. Or your versions might say gentleness. Now, kindness and gentleness means just what it states, that we're to be friendly, we're to be generous, considerate, have a sweetness of disposition. Pleasant. There's nothing complicated about kindness. I don't need to go into some deep theological abstract definition of kindness. It is what it is. But it requires intentionality. It requires you to be committed to it. And one of the antonyms of kindness is meanness. Now, we learned meanness early on in early age. I have four grandchildren. Two of them are in the ages of two to three. And you don't have to observe them very long before you start seeing meanness come out of them. One takes away a toy. The other one hits one. The other one says, no. The other one says, mine. It's amazing to me how these two-year-old kids act within their basic instinct of which they were born in. Sin. Oh, now, we call it cute. We laugh at it. But they're really being mean one to another. And I'm so proud of my son and my daughter. No, 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 no. That's not how we do that. Why? Because they have to learn how to be kind. They have to learn how not to be mean because that's their natural inclination. And at the very heart of it is selfishness. Mine. That's my toy. That's not yours. They fought over the garbage the other day. Who gets to wheel the garbage? It's selfishness. That's what lies within us. And selfishness can bring us all sorts of unkind actions, behavior towards other people. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you not only look unto his own interest, but also in the interest of others. You want to start being unselfish? Stop looking for your needs. Start looking out for the needs of others. Put somebody else at the top of the list, not you. I remember when I was struggling in prayer. I mean struggling in prayer. Praying for this and praying for that. And the Holy Spirit just says, why don't you start praying for some other people? So I grabbed the prayer list. I started praying for them. And all of a sudden, it just opened up. When I started praying for other people. I didn't want to leave that prayer segment. Another antonym of unkindness, or kindness, excuse me, is indifference. Oh, this one goes under the radar, this one here, unless it's done to you. Indifference is an extremely selfish act where one person dismisses the other and make it known 
by their actions. They go out of their way to show that they don't like that person or that person by being rude, curt, or just walking right by them. Again, this reveals the heart. This reveals the heart. I remember one, uh, one time years ago, a Christian friend of mine was very rude to another friend of mine who was not saved. Now, I took the names out of here, so stay with me on this. This is going to be an exercise in, ling in linguistics here. When the unsaved friend called me and told me that his interaction with my Christian friend was anything but kind, my heart sank. Because my Christian friend, in public, acted rude, he was curt, he was demanding, and he was impolite. And he directed it at my non-Christian friend. Like I said, I was embarrassed. Because kindness is a reflection of who you are. That person wasn't reflecting Christ. That person was reflecting that person who was agitated because he was being delayed. Remember, kindness is not an attitude. It's not a persona or an act we put on. It's a reflection of who we are on the inside, who we are in Christ. What's our heart towards that person? You're going to hear that a lot because it all comes from the heart. It all comes from the heart. And it's in us because of Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I have a hard time being kind to that. No, you have a hard time yielding to the Holy Spirit and being kind. It has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with you. Next, we see humility. The word used here by Paul means to have a lowliness of mind to our own moral position. Now, in really, in order to understand what humility means, we need to view it through a few lenses. Okay, And the first lens that we need to view it through is our relationship with the Father. And that we need to recognize that we brought nothing to our salvation. It was all Him. He chose you. He moved first. He called you. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. Yes, we have to make a decision and a commitment. But we cannot save ourselves. And the reason why Paul wrote this is because if our salvation comes by any way, means of our own, then guess what? It's not his righteousness, it's our righteousness. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. That's why they had a hardened heart. Because they thought they was right. And they were woefully wrong. And so we must come to our salvation in humility. In fact, it takes humility to receive your salvation, to admit that you're a sinner, that you're lost in your sin, that you're unrighteous, and that you need Christ. 
You need a Savior. That takes humility. It means setting you aside. You brought nothing to the table. And we're completely dependent upon the Lord. The other lens we're supposed to view it through is ourself. Barnabas called humility inward fasting. Kind of like that term. It's not a fasting of food, it's a fasting of yourself. It means to starve oneself of itself. Augustine wrote this, If you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third is humility. Calvin called it self-denial and the abandonment of self-confidence. In fact, Calvin insisted on being buried in an unmarked grave so as not to draw attention to his legacy or his teachings. I think that each of us have... I think what each of these great early church fathers is saying, especially in the world in which we live today, that does influence us, whether we like it or not, is never elevate yourself in any manner. Whether in inability, (laughs) I was, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Whether it's ability that you have, whether it's knowledge that you possess, whether it's expertise that you own, whether it's a position that you hold, whether it's experience that you have over somebody else, never elevate that over somebody else. Because that's not humility. That's pride. We shouldn't use those anyway to determine the value of who we are. Our value is in Christ. It's not in what we do, what we hold, what we obtain, what we, our talents are. As Rush Limbaugh would say, it's all on loan from God. Let me finish that phrase for you, or let me finish that phrase from Rush, and to serve and glorify Him. I was watching a sports interview, and they were discussing LeBron James. For those who don't know, he's a current basketball player and a star in the NBA. Has been for years. After Cleveland, which everybody knows that's a sports town that doesn't have a lot of championships. But anyway, after they won their championship there, he called himself the GOAT, which means the greatest of all time. That was years ago. Now, that was quite a statement given the fact of all the players that ever played in the NBA, such as Jim West, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and many others. And there was this panel of of current, recently retired NBA players, and there was a panel, and they were discussing what LeBron James said. And they were pretty much hitting him pretty hard for his pride and arrogance. But here's the thing that was just amazing to me. When they asked Michael Jordan, who some believe is the GOAT of the NBA, When they asked him, who is the GOAT? Michael Jordan lifted up the rings on his hand. And I thought, oh, here we go. Self-righteous Michael Jordan. How many rings do you see? He says, let me tell you something. There is no GOAT. There are only greatest teams. 
and he started listing off the Bulls teams that won national championships or championships. Jordan didn't call himself a GOAT. He called it a team. It's a team sport. But that's the world in which we live. That's the difference between LeBron James, this generation, and Michael Jordan, previous generations. And we can actually go and find somebody in this generation versus our generation, and they'll probably promote themselves. Because it seems like on social media and everything else, that's what they do. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Oh, we are always tempted to do that. The third lens that we're supposed to view humility through is with others. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing in selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significantly than yourself. Let each of you look not only unto his own interest, but also in the interest of others. Are we doing that? Do we need to work on that? I do. You see, humility is setting yourself aside for others. It's not thinking you're better than anybody else. Or carrying yourself in that manner. It is to be a servant. Not to be served. Remember what Christ said? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. He told that to the disciples after they were arguing about who would be the greatest. Who would be the goat. Christian life is not about you or me individually. It's about Christ in us. It puts God first and foremost and others next. I think that's the greatest commandment. In fact, if you read a little bit more there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you see that that was the very mind of Christ. And it's the mind that we are to have in Christ. I was talking to the boys today. What was our message on? What was the, what was the statement? How do you think? How do you think? We talked about how you think determines what you do. But here's the key. We can be humble in countenance, but it, it, it must be practiced in humility, which is the action of humbleness. In fact, Luther said this, humility... Instead of being humble, seek to excel in humility. Meaning doing humility. Being humble. Let it act out in your life. Let it be seen. Let it be experienced by other people. And so when we see humility, we must see it through all three of these lenses. God, yourself, and others. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, 5, I think it sums it up pretty well. Clothe yourself and all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I think we all need to work on our humility in the new year. Next, we see meekness. Now, meekness is closely related to humility, but... How it is used here means gentleness. 
and mildness, receiving one another with an open heart and a pleasant countenance. Additionally, it means how we face being wronged or how we face being experiencing a perceived injustice and that we are to be forbearing and forgiving. A meek person is not one who is easily stirred up to wrath. People don't own their emotions. I remember telling my son that. If somebody strikes you to anger, that means they own you. Right here. Right here. Don't let anybody own your emotions. A meek person's confidence and validation is in Christ. Not in themselves. And they don't seek it from anybody else. They never feel the need to defend themselves in the face of others or demand their rights to be observed. That's a meek person. I love this story. Some of you have heard this story before, but Booker T. Washington. I hope we all know who Booker T. Washington is. He's a renowned black educator, was an outstanding example of meekness. Shortly after he took over the presidency of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town, all white, when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeves, proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When he was finished, he carried the logs into the house, stacked them by the fireplace, and then a little girl recognized who he was and later revealed his identity to this lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. Mr. Washington replied by saying, It's perfectly all right, madam. He replied, Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand and warmly assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endured had endeared him and his work to her heart. And not long afterward, she showed her appreciation by persuading some wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars to the Institute. Now, let's put that story in present-day terms. How dare you ask me to do that? Do you not know who I am? You see, Mr. Washington knew who he was, confident in who he was, didn't have to advertise who he was. And he looked at that lady as a friend. And because of his actions, it changed her. It changed her. Titus 3.2 described this well and encouraging us to be the same when it says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards other people. Does that describe you? I have a little work to do in that area too. Next, we see patience. 
Patience used here means long-suffering. To me, patience is waiting longer than you want to for something, right? But long-suffering is what they're talking about. And long-suffering is endurance, being steadfast, to persevere. In fact, long-suffering means long in temper, long in temperament. I like how Gill's exposition, exposition defines it in the context that we're talking about here when it says, long-suffering whereby a person patiently bears the evil words and actions of others and is not easily provoked to wrath by them, but puts up with injuries and sits down contended with the ill usage he meets with. That doesn't describe society today. Have you ever faced a situation where someone was disrespectful and provoking you? How'd you respond? Did you endure it? Or did you say, oh, no, you didn't? A Christian is not to respond the way the world does. It's not who we are. The rule to respond by mixing two very volatile ingredients in their response, pride and anger. Pride in being disrespected and anger because they've been threatened. Now we know what God's Word says concerning these two, pride and anger. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. James 1.20 of anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, you know why we tend to respond in anger and fail to persevere and be long in suffering? It's a maturity issue. It's a maturity issue. Maturity in faith. A mature Christian is not ruled or controlled by their emotions. Their value is not tied up in who they are, but who they are in Christ. Their value is in Christ. They're no longer their own idol that needs to be defended. Christ sits on the throne and rules their emotions. He is our defense. He is our refuge. He is our source and time of strength. And by putting on Christ, we are to imitate Him and be like Him in every way. And so we endure. We persevere. We long and suffer in the face of those who come against us. And this is all lived out in our interaction with others, especially those in the church as Paul continues in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, almost, you also must forgive. You see, we bear with one another and forgive one another because we're children of the Most High God. I have heard that this Christian experience would be great if it wasn't for people. Well, it is with people, fortunately, not unfortunately. And you are surrounded not by fellow Christians, 
but by brothers and sisters in Christ. And those you face in the world are, who are lost, they're in need of Christ. And who's going to show them who Christ is? It's you. By the way you act, by the way you talk, by the way you serve, by, you, by the way you exemplify what we're talking about this morning. Who else is going to see it? Who else is going to present it to them? That's what I should say. The world's not. We've been called to do that. That's our purpose, is to become like Him. And our mission is to share that likeness with others. Never think of people, no matter if they are believers or not, as burdens, but blessings. Blessings. Because God loves them. He really loves them. And we are to love them as God does. And this brings us to the last one that we need to work on and improve on in 2023. Not that you don't have love. I, I see it every day. You show it to me every day. I hope I show it to you every day. But it's something we always need to be doing better and better and better. And love here is an agape love, a godly love, a sacrificial love. But it also means, in this context, affectionate. It means goodwilled. It means benevolent. It's what you show one to another. It is a pure love that needs to come from a pure heart. Meaning it needs to be authentic. Not just by words, but by action. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6. We should all have this verse memorized. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. Now, did you hear that? Did you catch that? This definition of love, also written by Paul, encapsulates everything that we've been talking about this morning. And it shows that love is the catalyst for all of those little things we need to improve on in our walk in Christ. Without it, we have no ability to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, to be being, to be patient, to be bearing with one another, or forgiving one another. Why? Because true love sacrifices for one to another, as Christ sacrificed for you. It's sacrificial. And so what are we talking about here this morning? Are we talking about a New Year's resolution? Or are we talking about something we need to do every day regardless of the year? And what we're hearing this morning is Paul admonishing and telling us to be compassionate to one another, 
to be kind and humble and meek and patient towards one another, that we're to bear with one another, forgive one another. Most importantly, we are to love one another. Now, I'm going to correct something that I said early on in this sermon, in the introduction. Some of you might have caught it. It wasn't an error. It was purposeful. At the very beginning of this sermon, I called these things that we just discussed little things. The little areas in our life that we need to improve on in our walk in Christ. In reality, these are not little things. In fact, they're significant things. They are the virtues of Christ that we are to possess and we are to reflect. And as Paul wrote, we are to be clothed with. The reason why I said little things in the beginning is because sometimes that's how we treat them and how we give importance to them. We can lack compassion and justify it because they made their choices and now they have to live with them. We could be unkind and dismissive as a personality trait. Oh, that's just Tim. That's how Tim is. We can be prideful and arrogant and self-centered and call it confidence and capability. We can be impatient and unforgiving and blame the other person for it. And we can be unloving because we don't like them. I, I just can't get over that statement. I love them, but I don't like them. Is that love? You may not care for some of the things they do, the sin in their life, but can you truly love somebody if you don't like their person, who they are? Still working through that. Brothers and sisters, these are not little things. These are big things. These are the things that Christ calls us to do. And this is but one mere segment of Scripture that talks about the virtues of Christ. Peter talks about the virtues of Christ. We covered them. And they're to be put on as a new garment. To be worn every day. It's something you never have to take off and wash. So let's make this our New Year's resolution if you're into that. Let's be more compassionate. Let's be more kind to one another. Humble, meek, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and loving one another. Let's commit to that this year. To not only within ourselves, but within our families and people outside of these walls. Let's reflect Christ in 2023. Now, in a few moments, we will be celebrating the Lord's table. And as I do each time, we, I ask that you would examine your hearts. Let's take a few minutes. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just pray that the Holy Spirit reveal to you which areas that we spoke about this morning, maybe all of them, that we truly need to improve on this year.
Go into prayer. May I have communion stewards come forward, please?